0: It is such a privilege to be here and I feel really honored to get, to have been invited. I came just recently from Indonesia and then from the U.S. Although I'm very embarrassed to be an American outside of the country at the moment. But (laughs) we won't go there. When I was 21 years old, I had the incredible privilege to study orangutans deep in the rainforest of Borneo. It was said at that time that an orangutan could go from coast to coast on the third-largest island in the world without touching the ground. And looking out on that view, I could believe it. Rainforests cover only 2% of the surface of the earth, but they have 50% of the world's species. But I began to wonder, as I was there, what would it matter to discover that orangutans were critical for the maintenance of certain tree species if they went extinct? And even back then, twenty-two years ago, before, the rainforest, before Borneo experienced the fastest rate of deforestation the world has ever known, you could hear that hated sound. The sound of chainsaws in the distance. And I knew what would follow. Because the trees they were cutting were so enormous that when they hit the ground you can literally feel the earth shake in your feet. It was easy to hate the loggers and assume that they were evil people. But the truth of the matter is, I got to know many of these men. And they were in an impossible situation. Imagine for a moment that you had a child as beautiful as one of these. Wouldn't you do anything for them? And of course, if they got sick, you would want to take them to the doctor. But if you are a subsistence agriculturalist, and you are only growing a little bit more rice than you need to feed your family for the year, it is very hard to get a large amount of money quickly. And one of the only ways to do that, unfortunately, is to log illegally within the national park. One man I know, Pat Sofian, cut down 60 trees to pay for one C-section. And I am not talking trees, Right? I'm talking trees that are host to unbelievable biodiversity. But if your child is sick, what choice do you have? What choice would any of us have? And the thing is that Pat Sofian understands that the forest is critical for his short-term well-being and his long-term well-being. Like many people around the National Park, he describes the forest as his mother. He sees it as the direct source of water. The water comes from the forest, it comes down into his rice fields, which then directly feed his family. He also has a cultural understanding of disease, that logged forest leads to more disease. And it's interesting because there's actually evidence um, that has been published in wonderful journals like The like the Lancet. <laughs> um, that logged forest actually has higher levels of um, malaria-carrying mosquitoes, anopheles mosquitoes. And then of course this forest is host to unbelievable biodiversity, not only the animal biodiversity like the orangutans, but also incredible plant diversity that many of the communities there used for, um, for medicines. But if your child is sick, what choice do you have? So I began to wonder whether or not The best way to save rainforest might not actually be with one of these. So I actually went back, I went to medical school, I did my residency, and then with the goal of returning to Indonesia so that I could do a combined human and environmental health program. So I moved to Indonesia after my residency, and I spent a year traveling around Indonesia looking for the right place for the program. And then I, I chose this site in West Kalimantan, on the western side of the Indonesian side of the island of Borneo called Gunung Palung National Park, which is really the jewel and the crown of the national parks in Indonesia. And I teamed up with this amazing woman, Hotlan Ampasungu, and the two of us began work with the 60,000 people around that national park. So how are we going to fix this problem? Well, there's huge rampant logging around the national park. Um, there's all these health problems. And, well, um, here I am, an expert. I went to Yale University. I should know what I'm doing. Um, But actually, no. I have not a clue how to solve this problem. I have been taught to think in boxes. But this is not a boxed problem. And the people who knew this, intimately, with every fiber of their being, were the people who lived around the National Park. So, in the first year, we spent 400 hours doing what I call radical listening. We sat with the communities and we asked them this question. You all are guardians of a precious rainforest that is valuable to the health of the whole world. What would you all need as a thank you from the world community in order to be able to protect it? Now, why do I call this radical listening? First of all, because we did it with radical love and respect. Second of all, because we did it with the intention of actually following through with what the people said. And three, I call it radical because it's not the way normally things are done. It's bottom-up driven development. So what did they ask for? Well, they asked for high-quality, affordable health care. They said, without that, we cannot protect the forest. Because one medical emergency can cost an entire year's income. So, I I knew this, This that's why I went to medical school. Okay, that one was clear. And it was nice to have it affirmed in every single village around the park. But then the second one really blew my mind. They asked for training in organic farming. I was like, really? I mean, that's what you're asking for? Why don't you just talk to your grandparents? But the issue is, this is how they described it. They said, look, the traditional form of agriculture here is slash and burn. That worked really well when there was lots of forest and not many people. And it doesn't work anymore. And we heard that there was a way to plant in one place without expensive chemical fertilizers, and we don't know what it is, would you please teach us? Well, actually, Hotlin and I, she's a dentist, I'm a doctor, None, one of us are experts in organic farming. But I like to joke that what is needed in one place in the world is excess in another. And on just the next door island of Java, there is a many-thousand-year tradition of sustainable agriculture. And it was very easy for us to bring over Indonesian-speaking experts who could work together with the local communities and teach them. And I just, a few weeks ago, I was out with farmers um, in West Kalimantan and they told me that now 80% of the local community have converted to organic farming. They're no longer doing slash and burn in the hills, and they are now farming, and they're growing vegetables and rice, which are dramatically increasing their income. So how do we provide high-quality health care in a remote place in Borneo where the training of physicians is, shall we say, still developing? Well, like I said, there are excess Um, there's excess knowledge in other parts of the world. And in most of the developing world, there are many physicians, like in this room, who have lots of resources, who can take time, but who are often lacking a sense of meaning and fulfillment in their life. And we actually have more volunteer physicians than we can accept, although we'll be happy to have you apply if you'd like, (laughs) Um, who come out and teach our young Indonesian doctors... These docs provide thousands of hours of free training, and at the same time they are learning. And our, we've trained over now over 30 young Indonesian doctors, and many of them have gone out to work in other places throughout Indonesia, and they tell me they are the best doctors in their hospitals. And I am sure that that is the case. And the thing is that the learning goes both ways. In this picture, it may look like Dr. Iwen Wang from Stanford is teaching Dr. Nomi, but it is actually the other way around. And in that process of transfer of knowledge, there is a real bonding of lifelong friendships. So that's how we do affordable. How? Sorry, that's how we do high quality. How do we do affordable? Well, in our clinic, you can actually pay with all kinds of non-cash means. You can pay with seedlings that we use for reforestation. You can pay with beautiful traditional handicrafts that we then sell to pay for medicine. You can also pay with labor that we use to make everything we do cheaper. You can even pay with manure, which is in the beginning was very popular, but then after we did a lot of <laughs> organic farm training, nah, no one is going to let go of their manure now. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that is... In these ways, no one ever has to log in order to pay for health care. Then we have another way that we tightly intertwine our conservation work and our health care work. Every village that is not doing any illegal logging during a given three-month period of time gets a 70% discount. Now, that encourages communities to work together and, and brings about some sort of um, social pressure on the few individuals in a community who are often um, working that is damaging the whole community. And in this way, we can also get conservation organizations to help us pay for health care. So they will pay for the discount. For example, they will do reforestation work, and they will pay for reforestation work, and then we can buy the seedlings from our patients. Because the thing is, we don't have to choose between these two adorable little ones. The way to save baby orangutans is actually to save baby humans. And the way to save baby humans is to save baby orangutans. So we did a baseline survey when we first started of 1,500 households. And then we repeated that survey uh, five years later. And this is what we saw. So first of all, the health impact. So when we started, there was 3.4 infant deaths per 100 households. That then declined 68% to 1.1 in just five years. And as many of you know, infant mortality is one of the best indicators of overall health of the community. We also asked about various um, symptoms of disease Over the prior three months in both of those surveys, we found that 71% of the people um, of the households had had fever when we in the prior three months in 2007 and in 2012 that had declined to just 52%. Diarrhea declined 50% from 40% to 20%, and cough lasting more than three weeks, which in our area is mostly. Uh, tuberculosis but also quite a bit of of pertussis so that also went down dramatically and this is combined at the same time we were doing a a very intensive tuberculosis control program um, with uh, directly observed therapy and then what about births per mother well actually that surprisingly went not surprisingly but it went down a little bit as well Now, that's been shown all over the world, that when babies are more likely to survive, women have fewer children. What about the logging? Well, when we started, there were about 1,350 logging households. Five years later, that had declined to 450. And now we're at 180 individuals. And we've just recently started a chainsaw buyback program, and we're hoping with that that we're going to get. We probably will never get totally to zero, but we'll hope to get even lower. So, what are all these lo- previous loggers doing? Well, it turns out that 52% of them are doing farming. There's a lo- you know a long tail of all the other things they're doing, but it's mostly farming, which is interesting because it says to me that they knew exactly what the critical fulcrums of change were. And one of the, um, at our five year anniversary party, one of the village leaders said, in my village there used to be over a hundred loggers. Now there are less than ten. He said, the big difference that I've seen is that now loggers can become farmers without startup money for expensive chemical fertilizers. That's again one of those sort of deeper layers of understanding that I never would have gotten as an outsider. So what is the impact of one site? Well, we've saved over 2,000 orangutans. And that's wonderful because biodiversity is critical, especially as climate change um, is taken over. And then if the national park were to be entirely logged and all of that um, carbon were to be burned, the amount of carbon emitted would be equal to 14 years of San Francisco pollution. Saving these rainforests in Borneo is critical. There were times last year, during severe fires, that the amount of emissions from Borneo in one day was greater than the entire emissions from the United States. It's really critical we save these rainforests. The other thing is that what you do may not be as important as how you do it. Empowerment really matters. This is a picture of our forest guardians. These are people who are based in every single village around the national park. And they work together with their communities to find solutions on an individual family basis. And one of the, farmer, one of the community members said before this program started, we had no hope When you look, so we see this program as being incredibly successful, and we would like to replicate it in many other parts of Indonesia and the world. And we've begun work doing radical listening in many other communities. And what we've discovered is that just like around Gunung Palung National Park, there is incredible consistency. Every single village, independently in a given area, will come to the same conclusions about what it is that they need. It's not like every single person knows. Every single person does not know. But together in a group, by consensus, they can figure out what the critical issues are. So if they know what those issues are, why haven't they solved them? Because they can't. They don't have access to the knowledge or the resources. But that knowledge and those resources are excess in other parts of the world. In one area, the communities told me that they needed fish farming training, training of their healthcare providers, and water filters. Those things are doable, and they are doable without a huge program on the ground, to be able to get people access to those things. And they said with those things, they would not need to sell their land to the palm oil companies and become slaves to them. So honestly, sometimes, even though I get to do this work, and it's very hopeful work, I feel a great sense of panic. Yesterday, when we heard we have 3 to 13 years to figure it out, It scares me, right? Are the forces of greed and destruction going to win? Or is love and compassion going to win? Are we going to find a way as a human species to transcend our narrow-minded only thinking about ourselves? Or are we going to be able to fully understand that we are all intertwined? And what every single one of us does on this planet matters. Because we don't want anyone to have to choose between the well-being of their child and the well-being of the planet. And I have been playing with this idea about what would happen if we could do radical listening everywhere on the planet. If together people could, get to, could join forces and decide, well, what are the critical issues in our community? How could we live more in balance? And you know what? Probably those communities can't solve those problems on their own. But I believe if we worked together, we could solve them. Because the answer of how to get there to a more sustainable planet is right in front of our eyes. Or maybe I should say, it's right by our ears. All we have to do is listen and I hope that you will join me in having hope that this is possible. Thank you.